Hello, Ghostbusters. This is Janine Melnick speaking. Yeah, the real one. Oh, sorry to hear your place is haunted, but the guys, they're out at the moment. Really? You want me to put you on hold? Well, okay. The hold music is Reitman for the Job, podcast with Ross May. Dr. Vankman says it's all we can afford. Yeah. Okay. I'll talk to you later when they're back. Bye. Ghosts come in every shape and size, but they're all in for a big surprise. You got it. The real Ghostbusters are here to stay. Today. Happy Halloween, boys and ghouls. Ross May here, and we're doing things a little bit differently this year. Instead of going through an episode of The Real Ghostbusters beat by beat like I have done for other episodes, I invited Dave Boobit of the Filmstrips podcast. We'll be watching from Season 1, When Halloween Was Forever. But first, some of our usual haunted housekeeping. This episode aired November 1st, 1986. So kids were loaded up on candy and could watch this the next morning on ABC. In the news, not a lot. Crocodile Dundee, which came out September 26th, was still the top movie in theaters. It would be the second highest grossing film of 86, just behind Top Gun. But not by a lot. For being a much cheaper movie to make, Crocodile Dundee almost made as much money as Top Gun. Wow. Meanwhile, Cindy Lauper's True Colors is at the top of the radio charts, something I'm sure Casey Kasem reported on his radio show. If you haven't, I'd advise you to check out my previous episodes on The Real Ghostbusters. I covered Xmas Marks the Spot and Ghosts Are Us. I talk a lot about the business side of Deke and what the animation studio KKC&D was. I'm going to take all of that for granted today and cover just a few quick facts. Let's talk about guest stars. The reporter at the start is named Cynthia Crawford. Get it? Cindy Crawford? Huh. Wonder why they didn't make the character look at all like Cindy Crawford. Anyway, this reporter is voiced by Julie Bennett, who was in her 50s at the time. Julie Bennett had done all sorts of TV shows and cartoons. She's on an Adventures of Superman, the George Reeves show. Actually, she's also the original voice actor of Wonder Girl in the Teen Titans. She's on a couple of Get Smarts. Lots of good stuff. There are three things I really want to point out about her. One, in keeping with the Halloween theme, do you remember the Bugs Bunny cartoon, Transylvania 6-5000? Julie Bennett plays Agatha and Emily, the two-headed vulture. Oh, uh, Goyles! Emily, look! It's our little friend! Look, Emily! Isn't it romantic? I always said four heads are better than one. Very fun. Secondly, for all us 90s kids, she was the second voice of Aunt May in the Spider-Man animated series. The first voice actress passed away, and Julie Bennett took up the role. And that, along with a Spider-Man video game, was her final acting role. Last mention. Seriously, Julie Bennett was also the original Cindy Bear on the Yogi Bear cartoons. She did that voice from 1961 to 88. Uh, suppose you are referring to my TV special next week? Yes, Mr. Ranger told us all about it. Well, uh, one thing for sure, it'll be a really big shoe. Huh. 
Interesting that her most famous cartoon character was Cindy Bear, and here she plays a character whose name is honestly Cynthia, or Cindy Crawford. I wonder if the reporter got the name Cynthia as an inside joke because of Bennett voicing Cindy Bear. I don't know, maybe. Anyway, she's good, and Julie Bennett playing Cynthia Crawford would pop up later that November for Citizen Ghost. In that episode, she's the framing device where she interviews Peter Venkman for a history of the Ghostbusters, but what we really learn is how Slimer came to live with them following the movie. Oh, Julie Bennett passed away in 2020. Ah, she died from COVID complications, everyone. Cam Clark plays the TV news anchor dressed as a clown. Of course, next year, he'd be leading the Ninja Turtles as Leonardo, as well as playing Rocksteady. But he has so many other roles. Liquid Snake in the Metal Gear Solid games. He's in Robotech. He was the second voice of He-Man. And my wife and I met him. Of course I've met Leonardo, you guys. Cam Clark would come back to the real Ghostbusters as well. The 1990 episode, Mean Green Teen Machine, is all about parodying the Ninja Turtles. He got to play the lead villain doing a surfer voice. I think he had fun in that episode, because his only complaint for Ninja Turtles was that, voicing Leonardo, he was always playing the serious turtle who didn't get to goof around. Speaking of Ninja Turtles, we can talk about our villainous guest star, Bill Martin. I mention the Ninja Turtles again because when James Avery left Ninja Turtles to work on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Bill Martin here was one of many actors who played Shredder for the rest of the series. Here on The Real Ghostbusters, Bill Martin is the pumpkin-headed Sam Hain, and I like it that he adds in an Irish accent. And yes, yes, the first thing pedants always like to point out is that in Gaelic, you wouldn't pronounce it Sam Hain, it's more like Salwain. The fact that we spell it like Sam Hain at all is probably a Germanic influence. Germanic people had the word Sumar, get it? Like summer? It's Somar in real modern German. Vikings and other people came to Ireland and Scotland, heard the Celts celebrating a fall festival called Samhain, and just Germanicized up the word by making the front end summer like it's literally an end of summer festival. So there you go. Yeah, no Gaelic person would have called the festival Samhain, but then again, none of them would use the word Halloween either, so let's give this a pass. But back to the actor. Bill Martin is also the orange goblin in this cartoon, while Frank Welker is the green one. In other episodes, Bill Martin also did a weird voice for the Sandman in Mr. Sandman, Dream Me a Dream. And, and, he's a lot of the trolls in Troll Bridge, including the tall blue troll, their leader. Also, get this, Bill Martin co-wrote Harry and the Hendersons. And he was friends with Michael Nesmith, and he wrote some of the monkey songs. Oh, he did lots of neat things. Bill Martin passed away in 2016. And finally, S.J. Mendelssohn does some incidental characters, including a skeleton waitress. She hasn't done a lot of acting on TV or movies, but I take it she does a fair bit in commercials. The song that plays when Sam Hain busts loose is Midnight Action, sung by the kids Tyron Perry and Tanya Townsend. Or they call themselves the band Tahiti. As I always point out, the music was produced and co-written by Ollie E. Brown, a childhood friend of Ray Parker Jr., Ollie Brown can be seen on the Ghostbusters music video. Midnight Action is okay, but not even one of the best songs for this cartoon series. I find it funny, it's basically the same premise as Monster Mash. 
It's all about monsters and witches throwing a party at midnight. So a good song for Halloween, especially this one where Sam Hain wants Halloween to be a big party for ghosts and goblins forever. about Sam Hain. He would make return appearances, I believe more than any other spirit other than Slimer and the Marshmallow Man. Next up would be Xmas Marks the Spot, just in a cameo along with all the other ghosts the Busters had trapped in 1986. His only other speaking role would be the Halloween episode for the very next year called Halloween Two and a Half. Ha, what a great title. I didn't understand until I was an older teen it's a joke on how many Halloween movie sequels there had been, as in, those movies that usually have Michael Myers. It's actually a prescient sort of joke, as there were only three Halloween movies at the time in 87, and we're up to what, 13 movies as of this year in 2022? Halloween Two and a Half. Bill Martin returned as Sam Hain for that one. It's good, and actually looks a bit better than this episode. Otherwise, it's basically a rehash of this story. Sam Hain wanting Halloween and ghosties to rule the world forever. The only difference is it includes the kids, the junior Ghostbusters, and the firehouse gets twisted into an evil castle by Sam Hain's magic. I thought that was neat as a kid. There'd be no Halloween episode in 88, but in 89, capitalizing on Ghostbusters 2, there'd be one more Halloween episode, The Halloween Door. I'll definitely cover that one in the future. That was a primetime Halloween special, so it had a higher budget and was definitely more of an event. But back to Sam Hain. He'd appear in more cameos, including the theme song to Slimer and the Real Ghostbusters, where he and a lot of other powerful monsters are just easily sucked up into a trap. Sam Hain makes another appearance in the now Real Ghostbusters comic. Issue 17 in 1990 is Sam Hain trying again, and honestly, it's mostly a rehash of his two cartoon episodes. The Ghostbusters are assisted this time by a wizard they know. It's fine. Samhain gets trapped in the containment unit yet again. Samhain made his final real Ghostbusters appearance in the Now Comics 1993 annual. Oddly enough, that's the final Now real Ghostbusters comic, though there would be another Slimer special printed afterwards. It was one of several 3D specials Now Comics did, and the cover has the guys all wearing red and blue 3D glasses. In the story, Samhain is already free from the containment unit for no real reason and is doing his same old shtick of making everything Halloween-y. As Sam Hain is absorbing ghostly power, the guys zap and overload him, finally destroying Sam Hain. Wow. His head blows up like a pumpkin being smashed on a sidewalk. Hell of a way to go. 
but it's also a slight story and not to be taken too seriously. But if you want, you could say the real Ghostbusters canonically destroyed Sam Hain in 1993. Neat. And finally, Sam Hain would make a cameo again for the opening to Extreme Ghostbusters. Ha, but they gave him a carrot nose for some reason. Sam Hain finally got a toy with the Extreme Ghostbusters toy line. He'd also be in a two-pack boxed with a Janine figure in 2011 by Mattel. So along with the Boogeyman, Sam Hain is a creature from the real Ghostbusters that still sticks in a lot of people's memories. I'm sure he'll pop up again from time to time, if only in comics and toys and such. Let's watch When Halloween Was Forever All Together. The episode debuted November 1st, 1986. Written by J. Michael Straczynski, directed by Richard Rainis, with animation supervised in Japan at KKCND by Kazuo Torada. Don't go away! <laughs> There's lots more of the real Ghostbusters coming up. Are we having fun yet? Happy Halloween to everyone, and happy Halloween to Dave. Hi, Dave. Hello, and happy Halloween to you there, sir. So today we are going to watch uh, the real Ghostbusters episode, When Halloween Was Forever. And Dave, uh, oh... I should I should mention what where you're from. You're from the Film Strips podcast. That I am. I think people who listen to Reitman for the job probably know the Film Strips podcast. I would say yeah. <laughs> There's probably a better of an average chance you've either heard the ad in the early uh, in some of the episodes or listened to the annual crossover episodes that we do usually around Christmas time. Uh, oh yeah. So almost always. And yeah. I, yeah. Sorry for interrupting you. Uh, and uh, I had two questions for you. I wanted to know. Uh, what was your introduction to Ghostbusters, real or movies, and who your favorite Ghostbuster is? Well, they answer the first question, uh, well, first, obviously. Uh, the big thing with that is I'm not really 100% sure because in 1986, when this is a episode's airing here, I'm two years old and really... For the you know my childhood, as far as I know, they always coexisted. I don't know which I would have necessarily seen first, but it, they feel like both a constant uh, for me. So I can't really say that one definitively was my introduction over the other. Um, but I think that also marks, I think, for a lot of fans' experience, where really this show and the films in the initial film for sure are sort of held in the same regard as far as the importance uh, overall. Yeah. There, certainly. Um, and as far as the favorite Ghostbuster, when I was a kid, hands down, I would have said Peter Venkman at the time uh, was, because, you know, honestly, who didn't want to be Venkman? Uh, you know, that was the quote-unquote cool one. Before you get older and then realize that most of the gags revolve around the fact that these guys are not cool whatsoever. Uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> there. Um, but uh, the older I get, you know, the, the deadpan of both uh, Harold Ramis and Maurice uh, LaMarche uh, as Egon Spangler has really come to be something that I deeply, deeply appreciate uh, over time. Because there's just, you, you start to realize, particularly with uh, Ramus in the films, just all the odd little character work that he's doing in any scene uh, throughout there, whether between the mannerisms, the physical gestures, just the playing around with props. Like There's just a lot of character that he brings to that role uh, there that really makes it, 
something special, and particularly given the fact that we never, you know, Harold Ramis never had the same acting career as Dan Aykroyd or Bill Murray, or even uh, to another, in a different sense, to Ernie Hudson, who, you know, didn't have that sort of writer and comedian background like the rest of them there. So he focused more on playing character parts. Uh, going for it, so that would be myself. I'm assuming you have a. Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember whether you've answered this question previously uh, on the show yourself. Well, yeah, sure. So I'll tell. You, so for myself, yeah, um, and you're. I'm the same way that uh, real Ghostbusters was in my memory, just always on. And so when I started watching it, they had already uh, switched casts, but I had saw so many of these early episodes with the original cast and with uh, Laura Summer who thank you once again for doing our great introduction, Laura Summer, uh, at Love That Laura on Twitter, that she is the best, friendliest person <laughs> over there. Um, so I just always knew real Ghostbusters. And this was my first, um, th- we say fandom today, that this this was the first thing that I was a fan of. And so I was uh, I was always playing with the real Ghostbusters toys. By the way, did you have any of the toys? Oh, absolutely. And there's still... A few of them, not necessarily in the best condition uh, around. I had that, uh, there was the Egon one where if you push the arm in, his head would pop up and his uh, jaw would sort of extend there. Uh, same with the, the race stance one where, you know, his hair pops up there. So, yeah, uh, those were great. Awesome. Figures. Those guys are called the, that's the, that's the second line of Kenner toys. Those are called the fright features. Yes. Yes, and I <laughs> I know these things. Does your did, did your guy's uh, tie break off? The tie broke off. There's still that little piece of it everyone there. lost. The, <laughs> everyone lost Egon's tie. I lost Egon's tie. It was a nice idea, and they're all broken. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. Uh, I do have a. I think from the wave one, the the uh, the Winston Zeddemore and uh, Venkman figures, because those ones didn't have that feature. They just had the proton packs which as uh, i think happened to pretty much everybody were eventually lost uh over the years as eh, well yeah. uh which is unfortunate because you know i would love to to have those but my uh nephew certainly uh who's you know dug through my my uh self and my brother's old toys uh has pulled those ones out and about from time to time to play with them as well so uh they oh that's yeah good. they still get their you know some joy in there along with those old swamp thing action figures from the uh, 90s cartoon but that's digressing that, um getting uh old and dirty and played with uh new kids i mean that's what the toys are for yeah the thing about yeah the um the wave one that you said like those were those came back uh last year with ghostbusters afterlife they reissued those toys except they were yeah they were at walmart's but they were barely available in canada oh god that that was the sucky i know like uh some of them um they they also reissued uh, Fearsome Flush, the toilet, and um, the purple one, the one with the pop-out eye, yeah. that shows up in Ghostbusters Afterlife. Yeah. Yeah, that those guys, um, uh, I never saw those two in stores. I man, I got the Ghostbusters. I actually got the the reproductions of the Wave 1. But yeah, the, uh, the those were just incredibly hard to find here in Canada. Oh, that is ridiculous. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's too bad. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I was always familiar with the cartoon... Um, it was always just there for me, and I had a lot of the toys. Uh, I, I think I've told the story in uh, my episode zero that one day um, my dad shouted out to me, Ross, come over to the TV, and I ran over, and it was the scene in the movie of the Marshmallow Man reveal. Yep. 
And that was incredible to me because I was totally unaware at like four or five years old, I was totally unaware that Ghostbusters was a live action movie. And so I had the totally unintentional reaction as far as the, the guys making the movie were concerned that this was incredible to me to see the marshmallow man as a real thing. Yeah. And I was just super excited. Like, here's the end of the movie. What? The Ghostbusters. And they're played by people, which is totally a, a, a weird, uh, a weird thing. Yeah. And, uh, oh yeah. As far as, uh, my favorite Ghostbusters, I was the same way. Peter was my favorite as a kid because he was telling the sarcastic jokes. Yeah. And in fact, not that my dad is, he's definitely not very much like Bill Murray, but my dad isn't, uh, really that kind of person, but if any, if any of them for a sense of humor, my dad, my dad loves to come out with just a sarcastic comment. That is his sense of humor. And so, uh, you know, I, I've said this before that growing up, I couldn't model myself off of like Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. Like that would be awesome. But like, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be Indiana Jones. I'm not going to be a James Bond kind of yeah. guy, but like just seeing, yeah, seeing either in cartoon or in the movie, the Peter Venkman character of just, and sometimes too, his and, and my detriment too, as little Ross is that coming out with a sarcastic comment when sometimes you should keep your mouth shut. Yeah. But, uh, but that, that was like, I kind of modeled that. That was definitely, it, it, it spoke to what my developing sense of humor. And I kind of modeled myself a little bit on like, yeah, this is kind of how I would like to present myself. This is my, as you say, this is my idea of what a cool guy is yeah. now, but it's not really that cool. <laughs> well, exactly there. And like, I, I've never had the quick wit to be able to be like Vikman at all as much as like, yeah, that's the guy I want to be like, no, never was going to happen. But I mean, yeah, that's the thing. And that's the thing I think that's different between, I think the viewers who saw this growing up, uh, you know, when you're kids watching either the film or the show versus the adults who had grown up with SNL and knew these, uh, um, many of these players from that or SCTV is that distinction where, you know, the fact that they are sort of, you know, the underdogs doesn't necessarily click when you're, a kid because you're so wrapped up and it's like well, they've developed their own equipment they're running around with you know, lasers on their backs I mean how is this not the coolest group of people on the face of the earth uh, right there that yeah that was sort of my real well I mean I kind of knew that before but that was really my big realization in um, when I did my big uh, two part exploration of the movie was that when developing the movie, they thought at every moment that this seemed like a joke. Well, I mean, yeah, we get it. It's a comedy. But uh, Ivan Reitman and everyone, they thought at every moment that this was a joke, including like, let's say, like The Firehouse or Ecto-1. That's a joke on, isn't it bizarre that these things exist at all? But to a kid, no, that just seems cool. Yeah. Which is totally, and and, and I think it, when, it was when the cartoon came out that everyone involved sort of realized, oh, that, that, that kids are having a totally different relationship with this idea of humor. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's understandable there. And I mean, it's certainly something I think we'll probably hit upon when we watch the episode proper is, you know, there, certainly there are obvious differences that the show had to make, make in concessions to be a cartoon for kids uh, there. And then areas where you might think there'd be concessions that did not happen uh, whatsoever, mm. uh, or at least uh, not as much the concession you might think. 
there in terms of some of the intensity of at least some of the designs, for sure, as we'll see. Oh, yeah. In this thing. And, and speaking of the episode, shall we count down and do it? All right, then. Okay, so all the listeners at home in TV land, uh, podcast land, uh, we are going off of the Time Life Real Ghostbusters DVD set. Uh, if you want to watch some other method, it, it'll probably have commercials, though. On YouTube, When Halloween is Forever, uh, Canadians on the CTV website, it's also available there. I'm assuming it's available on other places around the world. But we are watching on a DVD. Hey, do you think DVDs are... are <laughs> do you think DVDs uh, and disc-based media matters now? Like, <laughs> how, with what what's happening with Warner Brothers and everything? It's, it's pretty good to own a disc, isn't yep. it? Yep. Um, so. Oh, yeah. Um, so we've got it queued up and for everyone. So I will go three, two, one, and then beep. It's very sophisticated. All right. So here we go. <clears throat> three, two... One beep, and we're off, and we're walking. Yeah, so I guess just to toss them here, since you've discussed the intro and that before, just on the the issue of the cast here. I mean, for anybody who's seen the show, uh, you know, there's Lorenzo Music as Peter Venkman at this point, Maurice Lamarche as Egon Spengler, Frank Welker as Ray Stance, and in terms of adapting them from the films to the show. And Arsenio Hall as Winston. Well, that's what I was going to come to, because the thing about it is, is when you listen to things like uh, uh, Maurice LaMarche, obviously he's capturing what uh, Harold Ramis is doing. I mean, he's not doing a, a straight, complete imitation, but you can, if you were... Pretty close. He's the one who admitted that he was basically, do he was um, the one getting away with an imitation. Yeah, and when you if you listen to them or Lorenzo Music's performance, you know, without any visuals, and you were to say, which Ghostbusters, you could probably pretty easily pick it up. Arsenio Hall, I love the work he's doing here, but it feels like the show really struggled to figure out who he was uh, for in terms of, you know, capturing uh, what... Uh, uh, Ernie Hudson was doing in the film because it wasn't exact one-to-one -one translation in quite the same way. Yeah, you're right. Uh, and that that's kind of an ongoing... One of the big problems with Ghostbusters is that is... Um, first off, that Winston just starting off as... Oh, uh, right at the start here, uh, Ray is the one who shouts, and then you cut, but it's Winston we see. So I think that was a mistake that they had. They got, you know, they had this audio clip of Ray, and they, they just shoved it in here. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That Starting with the movie, like, you can tell, like, I'm pointed that out, that it's so odd that uh, Winston shows up halfway through the movie, and that's a holdover of, he was going to matter more uh, in earlier stages, and comment even more on the craziness throughout but it just ended up that he comes in halfway through the movie which is such an which is such an interesting and weird thing that the the movie does and then consequently here like I, hey i always liked winston and when and you get to ghostbusters 2 and he just drops out of the movie for a while yeah honestly for no reason that that's what they're following too closely to the model of the first movie yeah and winston wasn't there for the first half of the first movie and like, and as a kid, that bothered me uh, in Ghostbusters too. Is like, where's Winston? Oh, I always loved their uh, TV setup there. Yeah, that all those giant speakers and everything. Yeah, I, I just like this. <laughs> yeah. So and and so you're right that, and it tra it goes over to the cartoon as well that 
they never do enough with him. I, I counted sometime. I, I, uh, I don't have it in front of me. The number of specifically Winston centric episodes, I think there might be four and there's like over a, there. There's, you know, around 130 some real Ghostbusters cartoons and he gets four spotlight episodes. Yeah. So it's, it sucks. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, you brought up the the, the uh, following the model of the first film. I would say, you know, it's interesting with this particular episode that structurally there are a lot of similarities to the back half of the first film um, compared to mm, others, yeah. because this is certainly one where we're facing, you know, they don't re- reference it as a doomsday scenario in quite the same way, but that's ostensibly what we're having here. Uh in this case there unquestionably there, which I found kind of interesting this early on to sort of either repeat uh, that kind of structural beat early on, which is something that again, memory may be playing. They didn't do too, too often in the series itself. Uh, Uh, You mean, you mean in the cartoon? Yeah. In the cartoon itself. You know, uh, uh, I might disagree with you there. Like, um, there are definitely there are some small scale episodes like one of the most memorable ones the boogeyman episode yeah. um it's not about the end of the world but you know there's there's a monster who is terrorizing children so there are several there are quite a few small scale episodes there are quite a few joke episodes where it's just an a really annoying ghost or threat yes. and it's like it might and the ghostbusters by even taking the job they're just putting themselves in danger and it wouldn't be a problem if they didn't, if the Ghostbusters didn't exist. Yeah. But no, I think there are, uh, there's a lot of episodes like this where it's basically, oh, here's this big thingamajig. Here's a big uh, uh, monster or demon threat. And in some way, I find it's, you know, it, it's, it's the overall plot of the movie, usually minus the Dana character or anything, yeah. right? Because, you know, the, well, oh, I mean, there, I mean, just in a lot of episodes, there is a love interest for Peter, actually. But you know what I mean? But, like, the woman isn't often tied so directly in there. Uh, really quickly here, this, the museum. I love the, these the metal bars. There's just lots of crazy things in there. I love the windows. It's just, like, residential. Like, yeah. they just have blinds. <laughs> it's not, that's not... It's like someone set up a museum in a house. It's like, oh, let's just have these normal windows that monsters can crawl through. This gate, I kind of like. Um, I wonder if the animators saw uh, in Paris at uh, Musée d'Orsay, I saw, uh, you know, the thinker, the statue. Yes. Um, I saw by Rodin, the same artist, uh, a thing he made called the gate, uh, the gate to hell, which is a badass name. Yeah. Oh, there's, there's. Salwain, Samhain, however you want to say him, yeah. his name. Uh, but uh, I kind of wonder if this looks similar. This is a cartoony version of The Gate to Hell by Rodin. And here we have Bill Martin as Samhain, the pumpkin head. Yeah, with that very lightly Celtic accent uh, there in this instance. Ghostbusters. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I love the little the little Irish accent he give to it. He gives to it. Yeah. Yeah. There absolutely. And I mean certainly I, I guess this is one of the other things that I, I didn't appreciate it when you're a kid, uh, particularly with J. Michael Straczynski uh, being the writer and if I'm not mistaken, he was head writer on the show uh yes, early right. on there. I mean for anybody who knows Straczynski's work, he is a very intelligent, very well-read individual. And, you know, the amount of detail and references to, you know, actual occult history 
uh, and uh, folklore uh, throughout the show is very impressive. It, it certainly flew over my head uh, as a kid at the time. There. Oh yeah, I, I think you're. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Winston teaching Slimer to play checkers. checkers. Finals, yeah. like, yeah, yeah, jump me. Like, uh, you're setting yourself up, Winston. Like, what do you think is going to happen if? You tell Slimer to jump yeah, you or anything. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, He'll take it literally. I'm also trying to figure exactly how on earth were uh, Egon and Ray there trying to, uh, you know, assemble this thing with completely different directions. Like, you know, what was the scenario that led up to this misunderstanding? It's a very good gag, and I like that. Everyone, I think everyone likes that machine. That um, that's there f- uh, through the rest of the series. Yeah. Which I th- I think even on like fan wikis they just call it the spectral differentializer even though like it it could be anything it doesn't it's the point is that Egon and Ray they're at cross purposes of what it is here's a very anime shot here Janine like ah! yeah and I like Peter's head poking up from the yeah. top <laughs> a very uh very sort of classic cartoon gag uh... yeah here uh, here the they're gonna run so they don't they didn't take the car for some reason here they run and they go into a park I think that the animators pro well, or or rather uh, at the script stage. I think the idea is actually that they run into Central Park, but that would that's a heck of a long way to run. Like, I know there are small... And I also... I even I did the research. There's no statue like that in uh, Central Park. Yeah. Anyway. But uh, I know there are smaller parks nearby uh, Hook and Ladder Number 8, but none of them, like, they don't have... They don't have more than, like, a few trees. Like, uh, anyway. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, this is definitely operating on the sort of cartoon logic of what New York uh, spatial geography would be uh, in yes. this case. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You don't want to talk about that. The swirling ghosts and Sam Hain at the top of there. And because I, I've also realized in recent years that basically every animator is also an animation nerd. Yeah. Which makes sense, right? That, like, they're all like, oh, I remember, I know, I'm familiar with, say... Uh, Fantasia and uh, Night on Bald Mountain. Do you remember yes, that? Yes, absolutely. With the giant demon Chernabog. Like, I'm pretty sure, I think this was uh, storyboarded by Dan Reba. Also, I love that why <laughs> that one lamp that's <laughs> bolted to the floor for this gag. Like, Egon thought it was very important that this one lamp, e- Slimer, don't pull away this lamp yeah. idea. And there, the, swir- the swirling ghosts there, I'm pretty sure Dan Reba was thinking this is like um, Night at Bald Mountain in Fantasia. Yeah. I think that's what he was directly referencing. And, you know, with twice the budget, they could have made that even more clear and this would have looked more impressive. Well, the absolutely. That said, I mean, for... I mean, you see the budget-cutting areas. And there's basically the Sandman there on the right. Yeah. It's just a less defined... Uh, there's the Sandman episode, but uh, yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, you can see where they're saving the budget there, but, I mean, just to even pull off, you know, on a cartoon budget, you know, the fact that, yeah, we have a giant army of ghosts, and it it works uh, for what it's intending to do. And, I mean, particularly these shots of Slimer backing away from Sam Hain, and you have some a little bit more definition in a few of those shots. Yeah. It, it works overall, uh, for the most part. Now, one thing about... Well, definitely for kids, yeah. I yeah. mean, as an adult, you uh, as everyone who has said who has watched these cartoons as a kid, or, you know, anything, Transformers, G.I. Joe, anything, when it, uh, you have an idea in mind what this is as a kid, and then as an adult, you see more of its imperfections, but 
you know, we enjoyed yeah. it. Well, exactly. And there's uh, maybe the creepiest thing about Sam Hain is the fact that he has like these awful human teeth. <laughs> like he doesn't have he doesn't have a jack o' lantern mouth really. Yeah. He's got he's got a human gums and rotten teeth inside, which is weird. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, there, I I, I do want to mention these. There's one interesting guy running by. So the monsters here. Yeah. We get to the couple running. Yeah. And they're going to run into a restaurant. This is the most unintentional, funniest thing to me. Because they run in there and here, oh, we're safe now. Yeah. Like that one glass door will keep <laughs> monsters away from us. Like, oh, let's get a coffee. Oh, no, there's a skeleton waitress. If, if they had the reaction of the couple screaming there, too, they could have made that a moment. It was kind of scary. Yeah. But it was neat. It was probably yeah. the about as far as they probably could push it uh, for the time. And I mean, it's certainly one of those moments that closely, you know, sort of models itself on the uh, montage sequences of the ghosts uh, uh, scurrying about New York after the uh, containment units blown in the film for sure is well there. Absolutely. I want to mention here, too. Um, I guess I should have mentioned in the first half of the episode the guys were off model several times. Like Peter's face looked weirder here. Um, they're more on model. I think that a different team or maybe, uh, maybe even a different subcontracted studio, uh, did the second. So a different, so a different group of people did the first half versus the second half of this episode. And there's uh cam Clark, uh, who in a, a year is going to be Leonardo. He's playing the, news reporter as a clown that's kind of funny yeah and it's so weird thinking about how close tmnt is to the real ghostbusters because they do feel like distinctly different era programs in my mind i know historically that's not the case um but there's just something it feels like there should be more distance between ghostbusters and and i uh at least emotionally not uh logically (laughs) as the case may be okay uh i'm i'm kind of the opposite like i mean actually now i can how (laughs) egon's in that very dramatic pose we didn't see him get into there um meanwhile me as a kid growing i mean Look, it's you can kind of tell what kind of person I am because I used to write for Ninja Turtles, um, and they were uh, these were my two favorite things, and they were even both set in New yeah. York. When I was a kid, I didn't see any reason like, oh, maybe they could just meet someday. I I figured, but yeah, that to me they were my two favorite things, and they were both set in New York. I thought that was neat. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, like, New, oh, yeah. I mean, to this day, New York still remains like the center point of most uh american-based fiction uh there i mean we need a major you're right metropolis it's gonna be uh, New York. um you're right and i think even like the marvel movies kind of wrestle with that fact because you know the where in the marvel movies filmed mostly is it at, is it it's in atlanta for the most part yeah yeah i was about to say so it's in atlanta but it's made by all these la people but meanwhile, the Marvel comics were all written and drawn in, well, uh, until Jack Kirby, <laughs> he left for L.A., but uh, they're all based in New yeah. York. So it ha- so the Marvel movies have this sort of weird push and pull that uh, I, they mostly left that behind. Now they go everywhere and multiverse, and I know all that. But, uh, you, you know, in those first several movies, it's kind of 
they know they want to be based in in New York and Avengers ends up over there and all that stuff. But you can sort of tell that like so much of the stuff, including the Iron Man movies, like they want to really base it out of L.A. Mostly. Yeah. Yeah. And at least the, and certainly with, uh, you know, the Iron Man films, they could get away with that, given that Stark was sort of more of a West Coast uh character uh in terms of, there's no reason he has but then to why be. does he set up why does he set up the stark tower in new york and he says <laughs> and the avengers movie has here i'm supplying free energy to yeah. new york like that that that's never referenced <laughs> again but anyway, i guess we better yeah. i i better get off of marvel when we're talking about when we're talking about this uh speaking of which uh one of the animators on this cartoon is will miano uh, French name. It's it's difficult to spell. Will Miano, and he took over um, as art director in uh, the second or third year, and um, he worked on at Marvel Animation and worked um, on a lot of those cartoons, um, the Spider Man and Amazing Friends, and up to the X Men cartoon and all sorts of stuff. And he worked on this. So if you go to Will Mianu's website or anything, you can see a lot of he's he's done a lot of Marvel characters. And then oh, he he helped design the look of the Ghostbusters here. Oh, nice. That's a very powerful flashlight. Yeah. <laughs> it like like a little flat, and and it's not LED or anything special. It, it's got to be it's got to be halogen or yeah. something at incandescent. And then and then it's a single flashlight can drive away this evil demon of Halloween. Well, what gets me is that Egon, you know, you think once he throws the flashlight in its face that this was his plan all along. And then you realize a minute afterwards, it's only then that he uh, realizes, no, the lights, what did it? So it's, it's Oh, there's two Egons. I didn't even notice that before. There, one of the, go uh, uh, one of the Ghostbusters there just changed into a second <laughs> Egon. But anyway, yeah. uh, but yes, you're absolutely right. That it is that moment where he pulls out a flashlight. Cause how often do the guys pull out flashlights when, you know they can see Sam Hain. There, oh, there's a skeleton go, a skeleton uh, horse over there, which is again, that's a very Fantasia thing. So you, it is a little bit awkward to get to. I want to see you better. Is like, well, we can see. We know you're a monster <laughs> yeah. thing. Like it doesn't matter. Like, oh, now I know. Uh, it was uh, someone on Twitter uh, a while ago was making a joke about vampires. They said vampires are vulnerable to garlic and holy water and um sunlight doesn't sound doesn't sound like a fearsome monster of the night it sounds like uh some very picky plant <laughs> that you can't overwater or something <laughs> vampires should be pretty easy to defeat like we have garlic pizzas and yeah stuff. it's not a problem no absolutely now, what on earth are these lights just doing here? Like, I mean, it's not even looking like it's a depot where they would be locked away in this. Case. Oh, uh, yeah. I was I was going to say that the, the giant spotlights, yeah. this again, this, uh, you know, I liked all the Ghostbusters dialogue. I kind of liked everything that was happening here. And suddenly it's it, there are just random spotlights at the ground. And you and you can tell, too, right, that. It's going to be very difficult to angle. How can you angle that up? Let's say that tower is 30, 30 uh, floors yeah. high, 30 story high. Like, can you sh all shine spotlights up that well at a single point that high? I don't know. Yeah, no, most likely not. Uh, and okay, this bit here with the guys walking up the, uh, the building here. Yeah. I, you know, I'm pretty sure that this preceded the uh the old video game, but I swear like this feels like it must be like a reference to it uh or at least you know maybe they took their uh, uh a cue from it in terms of this. I 
Interesting. I didn't think about I didn't think about that. But yeah, that I can tell. Um, I mean, they're sort of they're kind of cheapening out here. Like it's it, it's way easier there. That that wasted a few mi- uh a moments to get them just walking up like that. Yeah. Yeah. That might. I never didn't even think about that. That could be the video video game reference a little bit. Yeah. Uh, do you think? Here, when oh, the the trap lost its, stri- its stripes, um, when he calls them zone dweebies, do you think there are actually some zone dweebies in one of Egon's books, or is that just a name he came up with? I always took that as one of Egon's efforts to sort of come up with like a insult that you know probably sounded cool in his head and ultimately did not okay <laughs> come off um but then again with the show He's, it could very well be an actual descriptor uh as well so yeah i was just wondering if he was describing something he read in a book that goblins would be insulted by yeah it could be could be um but yeah but i mean you you're absolutely right coming i mean the lot the plotting of this episode and it, i mean certainly it's not limited to this one it does this is where the Saturday morning, you've got 20 minutes basically to tell a story at most, so it's got to keep moving. It does sort of impact the logic of the story, and it's yeah. something that, I mean, again, as a kid, I didn't mind, and for, uh, as an adult, I don't really yeah, yeah. mind either as well. Seeing more recent cartoons, I don't know whether that still is quite the same with contemporary children's uh, animation. When you take a look at some of the things where there seems to be uh, at least in terms of when it's trying to be quote unquote more grounded, there seems to be a little more attention to detail in terms of making sure things make sense. I like I'd be curious to know if they could honestly get away with something like this now. Hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Um, I let they're they're kind of inconsistent on this show on how powerful the proton packs are. Yeah. Like, it, like it's 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 some nuclear device and um it can't for a moment it can't power up all those lights yeah. you'd kind of think that even i know that the proton packs are small but they're supposed to be incredibly powerful so i think it could power those lights and here uh, another thing here sam hayne might rub out slimer and kill a ghost that's pretty rare on this show like uh, i think i mentioned that i think there are like two instances where the ghostbusters blow up and essentially kill a ghost or a monster yeah. but uh i don't i can't there, there's very i don't know maybe other people would remember uh i don't think there's many other times where there's a real suggestion that they might de- that a uh, sam hayne or some monster might destroy say slimer or another ghost well certainly and here they got the spotlights. Yeah, the, the spotlights. Well, and it brings up questions about the sort of the nature of ghosts in this universe as well, in terms of, you know, well, are we talking about the spirits of dead people? Are we just talking about entities from other dimensions? Like, I mean, th- th- this is something that goes back to the film itself as well, where that distinction, they, they kind of play fast and loose, it feels, with sometimes there. Uh, oh, absolutely, yeah. Um. I forget who it was. It might have been Dan Aykroyd who had some suggestion that in the movies, like make <laughs> that giant yeah. head. That's funny. Um, he had some suggestion that um, you might even have ghosts of bacteria or just just anything, things that you wouldn't think would be ghosts of. And I th- I always find that that is generally to the Ghostbusters, the the movies and the cartoons benefit yeah. that you don't you don't want. And it, it, it happens on a few times. They've had to zap 
uh, a few humanish uh, characters, including Sherlock Holmes one time, <laughs> uh, who I know, who we know is fictional. They they explain yeah. it um, uh, that you don't know what these really are ghosts of in general, and the fact that they're sort of monsters, and often they're ma- uh, many of them are mindless. It smooths over a lot of those problems. There's the viewer to the ecto containment unit, yeah. which. I, I did say like uh, last year, or the year before that, I think that they're sort of building up to that in the Christmas episode where Egon will actually go inside there. And so they're playing around with things that you know from the movie, like like what is it like inside the containment u- unit? And here you're getting a glimpse and there it's kind of fulfilling on an aspect that the movie never uh, didn't even get to film at the end, that they were going to have a viewer like that. But the viewer, yeah, the viewer is down here in the basement where it should be now. And then at Christmas, it's going to be on like the top floor. Yeah, which, I mean, it's, again, sort of cartoon. Uh, cons- ca- suddenly the animation looks better now. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, yeah, uh, uh, and on everywhere on the Wikipedia page, everywhere, they always say, like, who animated all this stuff? And, and uh, people always point out, what, well, maybe TMS, Tokyo Movie Shinsha, might have done some of this. And I really. Um, don't think that is true. I would want anyone to confirm or deny that because uh, at most, I think they might have been subcontracted out to do the opening and ending. Yeah. Um, because those are higher quality. The, those are um, there and the episode is done. But we can keep on yeah. talking. Uh, Tokyo Movie Shinsha, like they are uh, really high quality stuff. And all of the good episodes of of uh, real ghostbusters the content themselves were all done by KKCND which is basically a partner of Deke and so if the, if TMS did any of it i think it's it's got to be just the opening minute and end credits okay yeah which i mean you know that's the thing and that's an area i know not nearly as much about uh there because i i do know TMS did work on uh, Batman the Animated Series. Did it not uh, in the 90s for some episodes? Oh, yes, right. In fact, we might talk about uh, TMS a little bit when we... Uh, hey, everyone, uh, uh, a preview for the holidays. Uh, Dave and I have been watching all the Ghibli movies. Yes. And and uh, Ghibli is not the same company as TMS, but TMS was the company that uh, Miyazaki and Takahata, the directors, were working at just before um, founding Ghibli. That, that's where they used to work. And yes, and TMS um, sort of, of anyone who does contract work in animation in uh, Japan, TMS is uh, seen as one of the best. And yes, in the 90s, they did uh, Tiny Toons and Animaniacs. Um, they did, oh, before that, they did uh, the good looking episodes of DuckTales over at Disney and Gummy Bears, uh, the Batman animated. They ended up in the 90s, like they always, this was because they owed uh, a lot of money. They they made some costly mistakes in the 80s. And in the end of the 90s, is it 99? Uh, Batman Beyond, Return of the Joker. That was really their, their uh, last go round with uh, working with uh, Western companies. Okay. So, so Batman, uh, be, uh, Batman Beyond: Return of the Joker. It's a great looking. Yeah. You know, it's it's a direct to it's a direct to video, direct to DVD movie, but it looks really great. And uh, that was TMS's last time working for a Warner Brothers or a or a Disney or anyone. Probably a good call on their part, given how things have shaken out. Well, it makes you know uh, they're a smaller company, but it, it's it's uh, it's the Disney model. It's we don't know what Warner Brothers is doing to. I don't know what their game plan is, but uh, but it is it is the Disney model, you know. Uh, you don't 
and I, I kind of hate this, but like you don't make something that you don't own anymore. Yeah. And it, it even makes sense even for TMS, for, for an animation studio that, uh, if they're going to make a cartoon series or a movie of something, it's generally going to be something that they own themselves, which also that sort of speaks to bring it back around to real Ghostbusters. I mean, it's, it's actually, it's kind of look. I didn't even really appreciate, you know, not that long ago, like 20 years ago or something. So uh, the real Ghostbusters, the cartoon was owned by Deke when they made it. That Ghostbusters, the property was owned by Columbia Pictures, which of course today means Sony. But Ghostbusters was owned by Columbia Pictures, um, but Deke got to own the cartoon series, and it changed hands. They sold uh, Jean Chalopin, the French uh, man who owned uh, the company. He sold it at one point to Deke. Deke then, uh, uh, excuse me, they sold Deke to Disney, which is actually the start of that relationship is why you get the Inspector Gadget uh, Disney movies. Okay. I, I've never seen those movies, by the way. They're terrible. But uh, before... <laughs> when, oh, okay. But when they... Because like because speaking of owning, uh, owning important things, like that's kind of funny. Inspector Gadget is like the important thing that Deke owned entirely themselves as, as a character, yeah. I mean. And um, when they were talking about selling to Disney, like, well, we can start this relationship. We can make a movie. And that's what happened. They sold it to Disney. Disney uh, sold uh, Deke and all its characters and stuff away. I don't know what year I would be. I mean, and and it's not it's not because Sony wouldn't want to answer the question. It's honestly because I think that no one over the, if I asked around, no one there would have the exact answer for me. I don't know what year um, Deke was on for sale and some smart person or group of people over at Sony said one of the things is the real Ghostbusters cartoon it is currently part of Deke hey Sony do you want to buy Deke no we we, we don't want that but we will pay it was probably you know like I don't know half a million a million like like it probably wasn't it was probably a bargain at the yeah. time the entire real Ghostbusters series and Sony just bought it outright and good for them and now they have that as part of with them, they can do anything that they need with this series. And uh, I mean, they were going to own the characters regardless. It's it's their characters. But now they're like, okay, every uh, just about everything Ghostbusters is under our umbrella. It's a handy thing, as which is different than say, <laughs> everyone is like, am I is this nerdy enough for you? Uh, which is different than say uh, the original Ninja Turtles cartoon, yeah. which you you know I I uh, you know yeah. me. I'm friends with a lot of the old hands at Mirage who worked on the original Ninja Turtles stuff. Um, a lot of that is, yeah, uh, Fred Wolf, the name you see at the end of that cartoon, Ninja Turtles. Uh, Fred Wolf, he owns the original Ninja Turtles cartoon and uh, CBS Paramount, uh, uh, really Viacom. They would love to get that cartoon series back. And Fred Wolf knows like that is, even though he just sells some DVDs, DVDs and tries to get it on a few streaming services and I don't know where it is right now. Like it's this very profitable. Well, it doesn't matter as much of itself, but it would matter a whole lot to CBS Paramount and he doesn't want to sell it to them. He's probably holding out for a lot of money. It, start, it started with, uh, I'm getting on, on a huge sidetrack, but Fred Wolf and Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, Man, they ended up hating each other very early on in that cartoon. Yeah, because because Fred Wolf, who's now in his nineties, he was he, he was uh, quite rude to them, and even when he had a point on, I'm on a budget, I've got a year to make this 
cartoon show. I don't have time to talk to you guys. But he was just awfully rude to Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. And so, like, when it comes later, like, like hey, can you give up this cartoon show? Can you sell it? No. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but but I lots of '80s tangents, but yeah, but the, but I think it's a pretty cool thing that the real Ghostbusters is owned by Columbia Pictures today. They also they they own Extreme Ghostbusters. That was that was developed in house. Extreme Ghostbusters, that was animated by themselves, and they haven't done anything that with it. That kills me because I have been waiting to buy a bloody DVD of the complete series. One of these days, like I am an easy mark here, Columbia. Just like put it out uh, for Sarah. And I do not understand what the holdup on this thing is because it's not like it's going to damage the brand there's nothing to hide there folks it was a pretty good show um all things considered yeah i i and it sucks because i think it must be that it's not enough for a company now it's it's like the the hbo max problem it's not enough for a company now to just make money it's not worth doing something unless you make hundreds of millions of dollars which is ridiculous and yeah so they'd have to look at the sales, the collective sales of the real Ghostbusters DVDs, which is, you know, not because uh, because the, the time life set was kind of a premium product to begin yeah. with. And they must look at those sales. And then th- they know they know well enough. Extreme Ghostbusters wasn't as profitable and it didn't uh, it didn't sell as many toys. And so there are there are fewer fans of Extreme Ghostbusters than there are of real Ghostbusters. So if you've got that data of whatever your sales were on real Ghostbusters, they say we're going to make less on Extreme Ghostbusters. Then they say, let's not bother, which that that last part, it's too bad because it w- you're, you're absolutely right. It would be nice if they had someone, pro- probably an intern. Again, I, I keep I keep talking about Warner Brothers. Um, uh, heads up, everyone. What what is that? Their custom DVD yeah, the, uh, Warner pressing Archive. service. Um, the Warner yeah. Archive. It, it was it was a. F- I've I've heard this from a few people, including uh Jerry Beck, who he's all over. He's the main producer of the Looney Tunes uh cartoon uh, DVDs and Blu-rays. That that has largely the uh, uh, that's largely stopped. You're not going to get another uh disc set of of Looney Tunes cartoons, really. And he was saying. Yeah, that there's a couple people working at the Warner Archives disc business and like they're they're angling to shut that yeah. down too. But meanwhile, I wish Sony would do the same thing. Like, here's Extreme Ghostbusters. I tried after we watched the Godzilla movie series, I tried watch I watched like four episodes of the Godzilla cartoon <laughs> series, the nineties yeah. one. That was and you know, it's not it's you know what? It's not terrible. It's just there is nothing really interesting about that cartoon it's show. It's better But yeah. there's gotta be someone who wants it. Well, then that one it was released on disc. That's the thing. Like they put that one out and was it in was it the yeah, whole series they put, or just they part put of the it, whole series oh, out okay. on uh, DVD. I didn't buy it because I don't have the same nostalgia for for that one there, uh, mostly because due to my searing hatred of the ninety eight movie, but the, the the thing about it is is that that one got a you know a complete series release on disc, but the Men in Black animated series no complete DVD release. I don't really think there's been any DVD yeah. release of that one. Uh, they haven't done uh, Extreme uh, Ghostbusters. I think they control. Uh, the Jackie Chan Adventures uh, as well, which was uh, around the same time. I think you're right. That was that was made by yeah. them. I don't know if that's a partnership. They I may mean, have been partnered I mean, with somebody on that one. Yeah, you'd ass- you'd assume Jackie Chan like you got to pay him some more money. But again, it's the it's the deal of 
well, some money, some money must be better than no money. But that's the crazy thing that so many of these companies, they don't even think that way anymore, which I find strange. When you, at the very least, I mean, I would you'd think that even if they're not willing to do so, somebody would license it. Like, I mean, Shout Factory, you know, has been like my, you know, my last great hope for some of these things where, you know, if you're yeah. willing to release things like, you know, if you thought a Blu-ray of the Doctor Strange made for TV movie was willing to sell enough units uh, to bother doing that, then there has they have to at least be aware that there's probably enough of an audience to buy a, you know, I'm not even looking for special features here, folks. Like, I don't need a, no. anything at this point. I just want the episodes of the show on disc. That's all. I know my limits here. I'm not expecting the moon uh, on this thing. Um, yeah. But, but yeah. But uh, I, I agree with, well, look at, like, we've been, Showing pictures of our shelves to each other. Yeah, <laughs> that's that, that, that's what we do, everyone. Like we were we were sharing information on like, well, I I have this disc set, I have this one, and we're media collectors, and uh, apparently the market has largely moved away from that. But yeah, uh, I guess we had we better say good night, everyone, um, to round things up and talk about Extreme Ghostbusters and all that again. You know where you can see Extreme Ghostbusters? I don't know in the states in uh or around the world in canada again extreme ghostbusters is on ctv's website in canada which i can only get to run on my iphone i can't get it to run on my desktop i don't know what's wrong with their player my my computer or what but so if you want to see again the real ghostbusters and extreme ghostbusters uh they're on the ctv's website in canada and i believe the uh ghostbusters uh web or uh, channel oh, yes. on, uh, on uh, YouTube there, it does have yeah, some of it. Not all of it, I don't think, unfortunately. Yeah, partially. Again, they haven't put the whole series on YouTube, but th that is very smart of them. Again, they they own it entirely themselves, so they just put it up on there. Psst. But I also think by putting it on YouTube, they don't have to pay any residuals to the actors. Probably, which is the, the, uh, <laughs> the, the problem. The things we've discovered, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is, yeah, the wonders of basically uh, negotiations and contract lawyer folks for uh, what you get back paid uh, at the end of the day. It's loony uh, when you start digging through it all. Uh. You hope it's a loony. Uh, honest, uh, oh, my final anecdote, and then we'll say goodbye. Yeah, yeah um... Uh, I am a little bit online friends with Christy Marks. Christy Marks um, wrote for G.I. Joe, and uh, most notably, uh, a lot of people remember her for being in charge of the cartoon Gem. And she honestly showed one time, she said, here, do you want to see what a residual check is like? <laughs> and from and from like international uh, payments of... Again, it was it wasn't, and I don't think it was just Jem. It was Jem and her GI Joe cartoons and and Spider Man cartoons and all this sort of stuff. And it was like a buck fifty US. Yeah. And she was just that. That's the nature of it. But she's mostly amused by that now. It's like like, hey, look at everyone. That this is this is what my old work nets me today. It's a buck fifty. Yeah, and I've and I've heard similar stories. Ed Solomon said something uh, the same about the uh, Men in Black residuals he gets for the original film. But as he points out, it's that's right. Yeah. I I'm sorry. You, you I was gonna know. say he points out it's like yeah, technically if you look at the books, that film still hasn't made a profit. Meanwhile, they've made at least four or three sequels in an animated series uh, to a butch. Sure. I know. I I saw that, and I it's too bad that I didn't learn that before I did the Men in Black. Uh, movies uh, and and cartoon series. I didn't realize that. Yeah, that they really Sony really screwed him over on 
that one that uh, he wrote Men in Black and that they say, oh, it's never earned any money. Yeah. <laughs> That's ridiculous. And to to uh, screw out people like him and a few other people who worked on the movie. That's that's too bad. Well, and it's the same thing. And I've heard the same thing, apparently, that the Harry Potter films have all on paper, quote unquote, never made a profit and so on and so forth. Like, that is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. And it's like the third most profitable movie series in the world or something. Oh, like that. absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. Like Hollywood yeah. accounting is bizarre. And I, I think it was Eddie Murphy who sued in the 80s. Uh, paramount over a similar issue and they i think eventually settled if i remember my history correctly uh mainly so nobody would ever actually take a look at the books uh <laughs> if it made it that far okay. so but uh yeah hollywood folks it's it's a horrible industry um we're not a, we talk about these things but we're not about to move yeah, there anyway yeah. we should say happy halloween good night dave good night crowd yep, enjoy the uh, festivities and enjoy whatever candy you can get your hands on absolutely uh take care everybody Adios.